Unless you are a Canadian or live in Canada, you may not have heard of the Highway of Tears, a 450-mile stretch of highway that runs between Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia, Canada. The 1969 unsolved murder of Gloria Moody, a 26-year-old mother of two who was beaten and left to bleed to death just outside Williams Lake, is considered to be the first victim on this notorious stretch of road. Since Gloria's death, the total of known victims who have died or disappeared in similar circumstances around the same area is thought to be well over 40, and that is just the ones who have been reported. The phenomena became so mysterious and frequent that in 2005, Project E-Panna was set up by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police with the sole purpose of solving cases of missing and murdered persons along the Highway of Tears. Some of the missing have since been found murdered, although a large proportion of them remain unsolved, even after the emergence of DNA testing. For these victims' families, although it is the worst possible outcome, at least they have been able to lay their loved ones to rest. For others, the worst thing is not knowing what has happened to their loved ones, who have just vanished off the face of the earth. For them, there is no closure, no remains to bury, and so far, no explanation. In this list, we will focus just on disappearances in the hopes that it will trigger a memory that could lead to unlocking the mystery of what happened to these women on the infamous Highway of Tears. Shelley Ann Bascu. On the evening of May the 3rd, 1983, 16-year-old Shelley Ann Bascu was babysitting with her boyfriend at a mobile home park in the town of Hinton in Alberta, Canada. At around 8 p.m., Shelley called her mum and said she was on her way home and could she cook her some noodles. Her mum said okay and asked her what time she would be back. Shelley replied about 15 minutes. But Shelley Ann never came home and has never been seen or heard of since. The police were called and it was established that Shelley Ann was last seen at around 8.30 p.m. on Highway 16 about 800 meters west of the edge of Hinton's town, walking towards her family home. Initially, it was believed she was a runaway. However, there was nothing to suggest Anne was unhappy. She had a good family life, a close group of friends at Harry College High School, and loved her dog and cat so much, she would never just leave them behind. A few days after her disappearance, searchers found some of Shelley Anne's clothes near the Athabasca River, but after an extensive forensic analysis of the items, it failed to recover any DNA profile that would lead to a suspect. Despite hundreds of statements being collected by investigators, including two witnesses seeing someone getting into a van on the Yellowhead Highway just west of Hinton, few clues have turned up since. So what happened to her? When the family moved to Hinton from Brooks in 1977, they believed it was a safe place, and Shelley Ann was especially trusting of everyone who lived there. Her mother is convinced she may have interacted with someone she knew before her disappearance. Shelley Ann's mother is in no doubt that there are people in Hinton who are holding secrets about the disappearance of her daughter, and possibly the other women who have vanished. She's always believed somebody knows something. It's now been 37 years since Shelley Ann was last seen, her name has been added to the ever-growing Highway of Tears murders and disappearances, and because no remains have ever been recovered, there is always hope that Shelley Ann is still alive. 
At the time of her disappearance, Shelley was of slim build with brown hair and brown eyes and was around five feet tall. Doreen Jack and her family. In 1989, Ronnie Jack met a man in the first litre pub on Strathcona Avenue, Prince George, who offered him and his partner Doreen immediate start jobs at a logging camp, believed to be near Klukel's Lake. The couple were both 26 and had two children together, Russell aged nine and Ryan aged four. The man followed Ronnie from the pub back to his house that was on the same street and waited while the family of four hastily packed up their things. During this period, Ronnie called his brother at 11.16pm to tell him of his plans. At around 1.30am, the Jack family left their home with the unknown man in a dark pickup truck. Before he left, Ronnie phoned his mother to tell her he would be away for around 10 to 14 days. Nothing has been heard or seen of the family since. Witnesses who saw the man Ronnie was talking to described him as white, aged 35 to 40, approximately 6 to 6 foot 6 tall, and around 250 pounds. At the time, he had reddish brown hair with a full beard, was wearing a baseball cap, red checkered shirt, faded jeans, a blue jacket and work boots with leather fringes over the toes. Despite this detailed description, nobody has ever identified the man. Investigators have carried out widespread searches and interviewed hundreds of people, gathering thousands of related documents. However, they are no closer to finding out what happened to the Jack family than they were on day one of the investigation. A family of four don't just disappear. So what happened to them? Were they lured into a trap? Who would want to kill an entire family and for what reason? There are many questions no one seems to have the answers to, except for perhaps one individual. About 10 years after the family vanished, an anonymous person provided information to a third party by phone and mail. This information was then passed on to investigators. However, the police force are very cagey about releasing details of what was revealed, but it's believed the person told them that the family was buried at the south end of George's ranch. Although despite an extensive search of the area, no human remains were located. Is it possible this one person holds the answers, not only to the whereabouts of Doreen and her family, but possibly the other victims of the Highway of Tears? The police force haven't heard from the person since, and are still appealing for them to come forward. Who was this person? Over the years, there has also been speculation that serial killer Bobby Jack Fowler was responsible for the Jack family disappearances, as well as some of the other Highway of Tears victims. This is possible, as he was known to travel extensively throughout the USA and Canada. He died in prison in 2006, where he was serving a sentence for kidnap and sexual assault. But a few years after his death, it was revealed his DNA was linked to 16-year-old Colleen McMillan, another Highway of Tears victim, who was murdered in 1974 Fowler has also been linked to at least two other Highway of Tears victims, Gail Ways and Pamela Darlington, although their connection has not been conclusively proven through DNA. Sadly, unless the Jack's bodies are found, it's hard to prove a link with Fowler or any of the other victims we are featuring in this list. The vanishing of the Jack family is still to date a complete mystery, 
and is thought to be the only case of its kind in Canada. But after more than 30 years, this case is still active and added to the list of Highway of Tears victims. On September 21st, 2005, 22-year-old Tamara Chipman was seen hitchhiking along Highway 16 outside Prince Rupert, British Columbia, heading towards her home in Terrace, but she never made it. The last person to hear from her was Rob Parker, the father of her two-year-old son, Jaden. Since then, nothing has been seen or heard of her. She hasn't paid the rent on her apartment. She hasn't touched her bank account and her credit card remains unused. Tamara has vanished. Initially, it was thought she had intentionally disappeared and gone on the run, as at the time, she was faced with three separate assault charges, one that included charges of forcible entry and assault with a weapon. For this reason, her family did not report her missing for almost three weeks. The alarm was raised only when her father returned to Terrace from a fishing trip in the first week of November, expecting to find a phone message from his daughter who he was close to. When there was nothing, it was so out of character that he called the police. Tamara is an indigenous woman. She is described as feisty and able to look after herself. Her interest included judo and water skiing, and like her father, she spent a lot of time on fishing boats. She was also a devoted mother to Jaden. Tamara had recently shaved her hair off, but was known to wear a variety of different colored wigs. Some have reported she was a sex worker who lived a risky lifestyle, something that has angered her family as they feel these labels have devalued Tamara's life and lowered the importance of her being found. For this reason, we feel it's important to include her in this list to try and reignite awareness that she is still missing. Lots of untruths surrounding her lifestyle have hampered the search for her, and it was even reported at one point that her body had been found prompting the family to ask the police to go on the radio, confirm that this wasn't true. In June 2007, two years after she disappeared, something very strange happened. A woman called Lorraine Lloyd was interviewed by Terrace Police and her statement was recorded, in which she described the entire death of Tamara in gruesome detail. She claimed that she was brutally beaten and strangled by two local drug dealers with links to the Hells Angels after a confrontation at a party in Prince Rupert. Lorraine even led investigators to the location where she claimed Tamara was buried, but extensive searches failed to locate any human remains, and the validity of Lorraine's confession was called into question when she became uncooperative and inconsistent with her story. Whether she was telling the truth, we'll never know, as both Lorraine and the two men she named in her statement as being responsible for Tamara's disappearance are all dead. However, it's thought that at least three people are still alive who know specifics of what happened and were even possibly witness to the murder and or burial, and investigators have appealed to their conscience to come forward and reveal what they know. For her family, these reports just add to the uncertainty of what happened to Tamara, and her name has been added to the long list of Highway of Tears victims. Virginia Samper. 
On Thursday, October 14, 1971, 18-year-old Jeanne Virginia Samper, or Ginny as she was known, was walking with her cousin Alvin in British Columbia, Canada. As they approached the railroad overpass on Highway 16, Alvin told Ginny he was returning home to get his jacket and he would catch up to her. Alvin believed at the time that Ginny was heading to a store that was close to where he left her. His house was very nearby, so he'd only be a few minutes. When Alvin returned to the highway, he claimed he heard a vehicle door close, but Ginny was gone. Ginny was born into a First Nations family of Gitson descent and was brought up with strict values and a good work ethic. At the time of her disappearance, she still lived with her parents and worked at the Royal Packing Company Samhain Canning Plant in Claxton. Her disappearance was totally out of character as she would always let someone know of her plans and her family said Ginny was careful and did not partake in any high-risk activities. However, at the time, she was particularly stressed and upset as her boyfriend had gone missing and she also had a minor altercation with her mother shortly before she met Alvin. Sadly, Ginny's boyfriend's body was later found. He had drowned in the Skeena River, although Ginny would not have been aware of this when she vanished. Ginny wasn't reported missing until the next morning when her mother realized she hadn't come home. However, due to a mistake by someone at the Indian Band office, her disappearance wasn't reported straight away to the police force. This delayed the investigation, although her family and community members initiated their own search and the police joined in later in a more coordinated effort to find Ginny. The search was stopped when early snow fell and resumed when it cleared, although nothing was ever found. In the years that followed, there was speculation that a man named Kenny Russell saw her footprints next to the river, leading to the presumption that she went in. However, when the family asked the police for a copy of this evidence, inexplicably they were refused. This theory has since been dispelled by the family because there was no evidence that the footprints were Ginny's or that they were even confirmed as footprints. Over 10 years after her disappearance in 1985, Ginny's family were informed that the case was closed, citing the band chief counsellor believed she had drowned, an assertion for which there was no conclusive evidence. The family were furious and after complaining, the case was reopened. Sadly, Ginny's case has been somewhat forgotten and other than a few newspaper articles referencing her disappearance and the search effort in 1971, there is no public record of missing posters or any other media that went out surrounding the disappearance. Her siblings have tried to keep their sister's name alive with a few newspaper interviews, although it remains a complete mystery what happened to Ginny. Alvin's claim that he heard a vehicle door close just before he was expected to meet back up with Ginny supports the theory that she was taken by a vehicle, most probably against her will. As with all these cases, Ginny's disappearance is still an active case and believed to be yet another victim of the Highway of Tears phenomenon. Madison Scott this last one is not on the official list of Highway of Tears victims, as at her family's request, they didn't want it added. It is perhaps the most high profile case and her family have fought tirelessly to get answers to their loved ones uncharacteristic vanishing. And because it bears a lot of similarities with other Highway of Tears victims, we wanted to include it to highlight the case 
and hopefully with all the other victims, try and find some answers for the family. 20-year-old Madison Geraldine Scott disappeared on Saturday the 28th of May 2011, 25 kilometers southeast of Vanderhoof, British Columbia. On the evening of 27th of May 2011, Maddie, as she was known, drove to Hogsback Lake in a white 1990 Ford F-150 pickup truck with her friend Geordie to attend a birthday party. Maddie and Geordie intended to camp at the lake along with other partygoers, but the party that had been put on a Facebook event attracted way more people than invited and it ended up being a rowdy gathering of around 50 people. Things soon got out of control and Geordie got drunk and burned her foot on the campfire. Injured and drunk, she decided to leave the party with her new boyfriend. According to Geordie, she had tried to convince Maddie to leave, but she was already in her tent in her sleeping bag and didn't want to get up, so Geordie left her there alone. By the time Geordie left, there were only about five other partygoers remaining. During the evening, Maddie had been texting her mother Dawn and they exchanged their last text at around 11.30pm. The next morning, Geordie went back to the campsite with her boyfriend at about 8.30am to pick up her clothes and sleeping bag before making her way to work. The only tent left at the camp was Maddie's and when she looked inside, her sleeping bag and stuff was moved to the side, but there was no sign of Maddie. Geordie made no attempt to locate her friend or inform anyone that Maddie wasn't there. She left and went to work. Throughout that day, Maddie's friends and family tried to contact her by text, but received no reply. That evening, a second party occurred at the lake that was over twice the size of the party the previous night. Maddie's sister was at that second party, but didn't see Maddie. During the party, Maddie's tent was flattened. It wasn't until Sunday the 29th that Maddie's parents, Alden and Dawn Scott, grew concerned. Maddie was a free spirit and they weren't 100% sure of her plans that weekend and assumed that she had camped out a second night and that her phone battery had died. But when they started ringing around her friends, alarm bells started to ring, especially after they spoke to Geordie. Maddie's parents drove to the campsite where they found their daughter's flattened tent and pickup truck. Her phone and keys were missing, but everything else was either still in her tent or in her truck, including her purse, camera, and other expensive personal items and equipment. But there was no sign of Maddie. After the police were alerted, an extensive area around the camp was searched by foot, quad, horseback, helicopters, divers, cadaver dogs, boat, car, and truck, using some of the most up-to-date equipment available. Police interviewed all the partygoers, including the person who flattened Maddie's tent at the second party, and they had no reason to believe that anyone at the two parties was responsible for her disappearance. The police also reported that everyone was cooperative with taking polygraph tests. The last activity on her phone was at 12.30am on Saturday the 28th of May 2011, when according to Dawn, there was an incoming call from a guy they knew. After that, there was no record of any incoming cell phone activity, and the phone stopped pinging at around 8am on Saturday the 28th. They concluded that although it was not known how Maddie left the campsite, she must have left via a vehicle, because there was no evidence to indicate that she left on foot. And since there was no sign of a struggle, and it's believed she still had her keys and cell phone with her before leaving, they are convinced that Maddie left on her own will, either alone or with someone.
What is completely out of character for Maddie is the fact that she was out of touch with her family and friends for so long. Maddie has now been missing for nearly 10 years, and in that time, her family and friends have continued to keep the case alive and have organized several events involving the mass distribution of posters, bumper stickers, pens, and signs in her hometown of Vanderhoof. Posters are still displayed everywhere to remind people Maddie is still missing, and there is a $100,000 reward for anyone who has information that may lead to her whereabouts. Just to remind you, Maddie was a 20-year-old Caucasian female of 160 to 180 pounds, five foot four tall, with hazel eyes and a natural ginger hair color. At the time of her disappearance, she had numerous ear piercings and a nose piercing, and had recently got a tattoo of a swallow silhouette on her inside left wrist. It should be noted that Maddie's disappearance is similar to at least two other missing women along the Highway of Tears corridor, who vanished in similar circumstances, leaving valuable items behind. The two women are Bonnie Mary Joseph and Anita Florence Thorne. Bonnie's wallet was found with an uncashed check near a lake near Fraser Lake, and Anita was last seen hitchhiking outside of Vanderhoof, having taken her keys and cell phone, but leaving her purse in her unlocked car. Both women, like Maddie, have disappeared without a trace, leaving no clues. Is this a coincidence, or should Maddie also be added to the list of Highway of Tears victims? These five cases are just a few of the Highway of Tears victims. Not all of them are being investigated by the EPANA, who are currently only looking at 18. Whilst we recognize that the Highway of Tears corridor is a vast area, when you consider Canada is supposed to be one of the safest places in the world to live, it does seem like something strange is going on. So what do you think is happening along and around these isolated stretches of highway in British Columbia? Is there a serial killer at large responsible for all of them? Or did some of them intentionally vanish for whatever reason to live a new life elsewhere 